As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Helene Becker joins now, Senior Research Analyst at TD Cowan. And we're thrilled that she could be with us today. Helene, uh, January 22nd, I guess we get an earnings report from United. The others will lined up. What is their urgency to act, not so much off the Boeing accident, but their urgency to act because of the topsy-turvy markets they're in? Yeah, I think that we have um, a situation where we're expecting, or we saw fourth quarter traffic was pretty good. Um, the further we get away from 2020, the more we'll see managed corporate travel come back. I think um, the trip where you have maybe a one-day trip isn't coming back anytime soon. I, I feel like it's a lot like after 9-11, Tom, when um, the really short-haul trips went away, and we expect that to, to continue really now. Um, but the longer-haul trips, people need to get out. They need to see their clients. We've been talking about this for about a year now. Um, and we're seeing that. We're seeing that increase in managed travel. And we think that will continue into the rest of this year. With the Boeing accident, with the rivets, the fasteners, whatever we're going to see in the coming weeks of that analysis, even months, I should say, of that analysis, what does it mean for the dynamic of refleeting, a word I discovered last week? Mm -hmm. I think, Helene Becker, you know, refleeting is going out and buying the bright, shiny new thing. Is that accelerated? Yeah, well, yes and no. Um, American did their refleeting in the last decade, so they're on the downside of that. Um, United is doing it now and into 2032. Delta is in the middle of it, but Delta has a different, and Southwest actually have different viewpoints on the way they refleet. They kind of spend about 10% of revenue on CapEx, somewhere between 8 and 10%. Um, every year. So they're continually refleeting. So we view that fairly favorably. I don't think anything changes. Um, there's a lot of pressure on the industry to lower their carbon footprint. Um, I know aviation only makes up 2% of total transportation um, uh, carbon, but 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 others are, are doing the whole um, reduction carbon faster. So aviation over time will become a bigger percentage of it. So there's a lot of pressure to fly younger, more fuel efficient aircraft. 
Elaine, I can't get past this comment from George Ferguson, words you never want to hear when he basically came out and said, it's not as safe as it was before the pandemic, talking about the safety of flying at a time when we did just have this incident with uh, with Alaska Airlines. Also, the incident that we saw in Japan, questions around the competency and staffing levels at some of the agencies. Are you concerned? Do you feel like that is an accurate statement that it is not as safe to fly today as pre-pandemic? No, 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 I disagree with that completely. Um, the fact that there were no casualties on the Japan Air A330 is hugely significant. They were able to evacuate that entire aircraft um, without any incident, with half the doors being, half the emergency doors being unusable because of fire. So I, I think that's one thing to consider. I think from an aviation perspective and a safety perspective, every time there's an incident, there's an investigation. There's no cover up. You never see that as you would in some, as you may in some other industries. Um, there haven't, I mean, not to jinx the industry, but there really haven't been any major accidents. The fact that Alaska Air's pilots were able to declare an emergency turnaround, land safely, with no um, injuries is hugely significant. And I think aviation is still the safest form of transportation. No other industry does the deep dive into accidents that um, aviation does, and then aviation uh, trains for every accident. And um, I, think, I, think it's, I think aviation is still very safe. I think that uh, a lot of people will point to what happened in Japan and point out that that plane that everyone did manage to get out of, I believe, was an Airbus and not a Boeing. Yeah. But yeah, uh, nevertheless, yeah. So going forward, though, I am curious, what about some of the air traffic control issues and some of these other things? How important is it for airlines to do some sort of PR job, if nothing else, to assuage some of the concerns of neurotic people like myself, where you're looking at this and <sighs> thinking like, uh, I don't know. Well, I think you have to think... Um, Aviation is safe, number one. Number two, yes, we do need to address the air traffic control situation. And the fact that we now have a permanent administrator is hugely important. Um, that's another, you know, another thing that we view favorably. Um, the, the FAA is certified to March 8th, so the government needs to really step up its efforts and get it certified permanently. Um, I, my views are different um, than some of my peer group. I personally think the government should be responsible for safety and security. And I think air traffic control should be a separate corporation that's public, that's paid for everybody. Right now, General, General Aviation, Tom um, and Lisa and John, don't pay for using air well, traffic control system. Helene, this is, I wish we had another hour to cover this because I think it's I something each and every listener and, and uh, viewer want to know about. Back to the Reagan uproar and unions of years ago, mm -hmm. how different is our transportation safety structure versus other major developing countries? Yeah, so, so Eurocontrol runs Europe and, and that's a public company and, and um, Nav Canada is a public company in Canada. It's, it's just run differently. And I'm not saying it's better. I'm not saying it's worse. I'm just saying it's different. And you don't have the puts and starts that you have here. I've been talking about next gen since I started covering the industry four decades ago. And we're still talking about it. It's years behind schedule. It's over budget. Um, air traffic control, to your point, Tom, um, the Reagan administration fired all the air traffic controllers. They retrained them. Um, NACA is the union that represents them. They're, they're well trained, but they're overworked. They're fatigued. We don't have enough of them 
to handle what we're, we're doing right now. And so the aviation system will slow down. You won't be able to, we'll, we'll see growth through replacing smaller aircraft with larger aircraft. Um, we don't think we'll see the same level of pilot hiring in 24 and 25 that we saw in 21, two and three. Um, but from that perspective, as we move further into the decade and people have more experience, that will be beneficial. But we're not going to grow as fast as we grew in prior decades because we just don't have the experience. And we can't push the air traffic controllers to, to, to too much over time because it's a very taxing job to begin with. And we don't want any accidents to occur um, in the U.S. Um, because we want to continue to be able to say it's the safest form of transportation. Helena, I've got 60 seconds left on a clock. Top pick, favorite trade this year. What is it? Oh, yeah, our favorite trade this year is Delta, um, after United was our favorite trade for the past two years. Why the change? Um, you, uh, the difference in CapEx, <laughs> frankly, is the biggest difference. I think United um, will continue to do well, but they're going to borrow a lot of money. They have a $60 billion CapEx program between now and 2032, and, and Delta's is not nearly as big, so you won't see the stress in the balance sheet that you may see at United. Interesting. Elaine, thank you. Thanks for the update. Thanks Elaine Becker there of TD Cowan. Thank you very much. Starting the conversation this morning with Laurie Cavasino, the head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Laurie, good morning to you. This line jumped out from your most recent note. The week start in January is just the beginning of a phase of turbulence. How concerned are you about that? Well, look, John, you know, I was talking to one of my traders last week and we were we were discussing the CFTC data we're starting to see that's really just looking very, very stretched. And I said, this looks scary. Um, and I think we need to keep in mind that sentiment has been oscillating very, very quickly over the last six months. So this isn't necessarily something that has to derail a call for the year, maybe dampen enthusiasm just a little bit. Um, but really what we've started to see the CFTC data on institutional investor positioning line up with what we're seeing on the retail survey for AAII. <coughs> And both are looking very, very stretched right now. Um, I think there are a number of things that could come in and trip this market up a bit, but usually it's something the market doesn't see coming. Right. So I think we need to focus here on the idea that sentiment itself just got carried away at the end of last year. Uh, Lori, Mike Wilson, who's been cautious on the markets over at Morgan Stanley, has a brilliant paragraph hearkening to nominal growth could be the surprise this year. It's one of his more optimistic constructions of where we're heading in the mystery of 2024. What do mid caps and small caps do if we get legitimate animal spirit, we get legitimate nominal GDP. So what we've typically seen is that when GDP, and we tend to look at it in real terms as opposed to nominal terms, but if you're looking at real GDP above 2.6%, and 2.6% has been the long-term average since the late 70s, we typically see that small caps and value stocks outperform in that environment. When GDP is running cool below trend, that's when large caps and growth tend to outperform. So it goes back to this question of leadership and rotation in the market. We've got GDP forecast sitting at about one3 percent this year. That's up from about 1% back in November. So they're moving in the right direction. But if we really want to get a lasting, sustainable, durable leadership rotation away from the mega cap growth stocks and into basically everything else in the market, you need to see GDP expectations move up quite a bit more from where they are right now. I mean, okay, well, the GDP has got to come up. I get that. But what do we do right now? I mean, are you deploying cash to small, you know, they've pulled back. Are you uh, deploying cash this morning to small caps and mid caps? 
So I still like them. I don't like them quite as much as I did, you know, say four or five weeks ago when we last spoke. Um, One of the things we've seen is that in addition to sentiment getting a little frothy at the broader market, if you look at small cap positioning on the CFTC data, we're at important crossroads. We're basically at the three-year highs, but we're not at all-time highs. So we're going to know pretty soon whether or not small caps are really able to power through and take things up another leg. We're also still seeing that small caps look very cheap relative to large. But if you look at a Russell 2000 forward PE, it's back to average. Now, that's not usually where things top out at, but it is telling us that maybe we have made a lot of the easy money in small caps already. So do I like them? Yes. Do I like them as much as I did a month ago? Not quite. This sounds all kind of negative, and yet you just upgraded your forecast for year-end 2024 to 51.50. That's a 10% upside from here. If it's not small caps, what leads? So I think that the value stocks in particular are something to keep an eye on from here. We've seen the financials act quite well. Now I'm actually a little bit nervous about that heading into reporting season. Um, But we've started to see some more favorable views emerge on the industrials as well. So I think we're going to get some interesting clues in this reporting season. But I do think sector composition is very, very tough right now. Um, I do think, Lisa, if you kind of go back to our target, we were anticipating about a 10% return when we put that target out in early or mid-November. We were on sort of the earlier side of putting targets gets out. Um, we trued up all of our, you know, sort of models for year end. We did have this big ferocious run in December. And now where we're sitting today, even with this upgrade on the 5150, it's only about an 8% return on the year. So it's not necessarily getting more bullish. It's just kind of truing up our model for the for the year ahead based on the moves that we had in December. You mentioned banks, and I find this interesting. How important is Friday going to be as JP Morgan kicks off earnings to, to give a sense of what the landscape is for banks, or is it just JP Morgan's world and everybody else is living in it? So I think they all matter, Lisa. You know, I I don't think it's just any one particular bank. I know some get more attention than others, especially the ones that come at the beginning. Um, But I tell you what I think is important for the banks is, one, are those sort of strong numbers that we've seen in terms of performance going to hold up? Sometimes we do see, you know, sort of the banks give back when they've had a strong lead into reporting season. So are the numbers going to be good enough to really justify uh, sustaining some of the better trends we've seen recently? I think that's one thing. But also, I think for someone like me, who's not a specialist in the financials, we really go in and look at the financials for clues on the plumbing of the economy, on the health of the consumer. And I think that's probably going to be the most important thing uh, coming out of the next you know, kind of week or so with those banks' earnings. The real headline over the weekend coming into this morning, a positive surprise in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Laurie, this story, congressional <laughs> leaders announcing a deal on top-line spending for the current fiscal year. Laurie, I was speaking to Amy with Silverman in the last week, and we talked about your line that talking about politics, the election this year specifically is like staring at the sun. Is it that bad this year for you and the team? Yeah, it's pretty awful, John. I mean, it's interesting. That line comes from my conversations with U.S.-based investors who are like, okay, it's time to write our outlooks. You know, this is kind of thinking back the last month or so. Um, You know, what do we say about this? And we kind of walk people through data. We get through it quickly and then we move on. European and Canadian investors. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could easily spend a whole meeting on this. It's like a it's like a spectator sport for them right. at this point. Um, but I do think it's a major source of uncertainty. And I'll tell you what it was interesting to me last week when I was working through some of the data we saw at the end of the year and the beginning of this year is that you are starting to see money flows improve or turn positive to Japan, to emerging markets, to China and to Europe. Right. U.S. flows are still holding up, but we are starting to see non-U.S. geographies really attract you know, some better flows. And I think part of that has to do with the election based on what I'm hearing right. from the non-U.S. investors. Lori, answer a question for RBC clients watching, listening, which is, geez, we started the year weak. 
And that signals a terrible year ahead. Is there any validity to that emotion? So I tend to be very skeptical of, you know, these seasonal, you know, kind of studies. Whenever we do this on this day, we do this for the rest of the week. Um, I think that those kinds of studies can be, be massaged, frankly, you know, change your starting point to show whatever you want to show. Um, I've been actually looking at seasonality over the last 10 years. We've had some good ones. We've had some stinkers. But we have seen that January has been pretty much a mixed bag. There have been some difficult ones, if you especially look over the last five years. Um, so it would be sort of keeping with the recent seasonality to have a rough start to the year. Does that necessarily tell you that you have to run away for the rest of the year? I don't think so. And I go back to what we talked about at the top of the show. Sentiment has been oscillating so quickly. We were basically overbought in August, oversold in November, overbought in December again, and that all round tripped off of oversold conditions last October and post SVB. So I think that sentiment helps you tactically. I don't think you can use it that much to make a really kind of longer term view at this point. Laurie, wonderful to get your views this morning. Thanks for being with us. Laurie Cavacina there of RBC Capital Markets. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward client ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Claudia Sam will be up all night watching a football game as well. Claudia, for the Department of Economics at Michigan, all that heritage, what does blue football actually mean? Do you completely ignore it? Or are you at the 50-yard line for every game? Well, they don't let the grad students have very good seats, but we went. You know, it's, it's Michigan. Go blue. Right? Go blue. Oh, we'll see tonight. Thank you so much for joining. Claudia, Barry Ritholtzen, you had a great idea out there that in our hysteria right now of single statistics, we have denominator blindness. Let's take the national debt, the interest expense of that. And we forget how large our economy is or how large our labor force is. How hysterical are we right now? And do we need to calm down? Well, we've needed to calm down for decades. This is not a new conversation. The the debt has to be put in context, not just of our GDP. That's a that's a flow that we get that every year. We need to think about it in terms of say our wealth, which is multiples of what that debt is. And I'm also a firm believer, and we need to look under the hood and what are we spending our money on? There's good ways to do it: investment, R and D, and there's ways that aren't as good, maybe really high income tax cuts. So that's where we need to have the conversation, not just throwing around big numbers. Is the Fed throwing around big numbers? Are they having a conversation as they move out into 2024 that you would consider appropriate and rational? In terms of the debt or in terms of what they're in going to do? In terms of what they're going to do, their monetary policy, excuse me. 
Yeah, no, I mean, the Fed is trying to do the impossible right now. My heart goes out to them and we will play a parlor game for the next year or two and what their next move is. And yeah, they've got the eye on the prize, right? They work through financial markets, but they really don't care about financial markets. It's about getting inflation down. It's about keeping people with jobs. And we're we're well on our way, but it's going to be tough to know when when they're there and can say, okay, we can back off. Let's do an anatomy of what happened on Friday because it was some confusing data that I tried to parse through and continue to and read more reports and I'm just as confused. Which data screams the truest to you at a time where we got a stronger than expected headline number, some real show, uh, shows of strength and then real signs of weakness, particularly in services employment? Big picture, Friday's payrolls was a good day. Right. We had unemployment staying at 3.7%. We're averaging a little under 200,000 jobs in recent months. If you think about what the labor market is buffering, we have a five percentage point, more than that increase in the federal funds rate. This is a strong labor market. Now, you can go under the hood. You can do this in almost any month and say, Ugh, that doesn't look so good. Now, I, granted, there were some real signs, things to keep an eye on, you know, and we always need to, but this was not a flashing red. We're going over the cliff. I mean, come on, we've been under, the unemployment rate's been under 4% for the longest stretch since the 1960s. Well, That's good. What about the services, ISM data? The fact that hiring fell the most, the sort of sub-index for that particular uh, data point came in uh, the most going back to 2020 at the height of the pandemic. Does this make you feel like we're at a tipping point, even if no, we're not heading into the abyss, that we are cooling off in a much more material way? It's been the case that last year we needed to rebalance. We needed to get to a place that was expansionary, but not red hot. I mean, we were coming out of a really bad labor market with COVID. So we do need to see things uh, normalizing, slowing, not just this pace that's been so strong, because we want to get to a sustainable place. And there are going to be all signs. Frankly, I take a lot more out of the payrolls data than I do the ISM. We need to look at everything. And yet we've gotten a lot of mixed right. signals from the data you know, so far. So readjust the SOM rule for us right now. How many states are uh, in, in a miserable situation, Dr. Sam? So I haven't looked at every state recently. One that has stood out, and I imagine is still in the same place as California, that's a really good example of how you can have an industry that's having a tough time. I mean, tech in the Bay Area is legitimately having uh, some tough times, and yet we have seen no signs of it spreading because it's an industry issue. It's not like a broad-based uh, contraction. And I will say at the national level, the rule went back down to two-tenths of a percentage point. So looking good so far. Claudia, I just want to weigh in on some of the politics and I don't want to bait you too much. But whenever I listen to you talk about the labour market, you offer clarity where clarity can be found and where there isn't any. You leave the question open. It's really digestible, very, very intuitive. Why do you think this administration is struggling with the messaging so much around what's happening with this economy? For a long time, Democrats have really put an emphasis on being the adult in the room. When I saw the jobs number, I had a GIF that I use. It's like, boom. You know, it's like, come on, let's let's get excited about this. Yes, there's more to do. And yet when I look at all that has been accomplished in the last four years, and even during the Trump administration, the big push with CARES Act, 
we really help people. This is not perfect, but like, don't hide behind what you've done. Like, go out and say, we did a great job. Okay, then why can't they do that? I mean, John brings up an incredibly important point, Claudia Sam. You've been in the trenches. Why can't somebody just come out, not say, you know, rosy morning in America and all that, but say, look, we understand the agonies out there, but boy, has this worked out from COVID versus many other countries and continents? I really don't know. I mean, I have come across the fact that across the democratic spectrum, there's just so much anger at each other. I mean, I've gotten the worst feedback from far left and, you know, center isn't exactly happy with me either. So it's just, it's so strange, right? But, you know, I don't know. I hate politics. I really don't understand it. I just keep doing my work and trying to explain and trying to learn from what people are going through. And we value your work. Claudia, thank you, as always. Just fantastic to hear from you. Claudia Sam there of Sam Consulting. Right now on Your Washington, Isaac Moltansky joins Director of Policy Research at BTIG. Isaac, I got to go with the lead headline, which is, I guess, all clear in Congress. We've actually passed a budget. Is that true? Absolutely not. That couldn't be farther from the truth. Look, we now have top line agreement on what we can spend for the fiscal year. That's great. It's wonderful. And that just means that the hard work gets to begin now. You know, I think there are two points to highlight. Number one is you've got to notice how angry the far right flank of the House GOP is this morning. We need to understand that the speaker, Speaker Johnson, is operating with no room for error, and he will almost certainly need Democratic support to pass his bill. That's something that former Speaker McCarthy didn't want to do, ended up doing, and then got thrown out from the speakership. And then number two is there are so many points of departure between Democrats and Republicans when it comes to the specifics of the spending agreement. There are upwards of 40 different poison pills, some groups have counted, that could shut down the talks around this. So, look, I think right. the temperature has been taken down. The risk of a shutdown is slightly lower this morning, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done over the next 11 days. So what's the primary to-do list arcing over the next 11 days? Yeah, so what I'm looking at is we actually get movement on um, on the on the other issues around the spending bill. So it's good that we've got this, and now I think the appropriators will slink back into their their offices, and you'll see some backroom negotiation, and maybe not much on that. I'm interested in the border deal, Tom, because we've got to keep in mind the spending agreement is just part of this 3D chess game that we have going on. The other part is the supplemental spending measures. And here I'm talking about border security and then, of course, um, funding for Taiwan, Ukraine and Israel. That's the other part of it. And the lynch all of that is the border security deal that we're now expecting to come later this week. You mentioned the international security concerns, big foreign policy issues. We've got to talk about the curious case of the missing defence secretary. Now, Isaac, first of all, we wish him all a speedy recovery. From what? None of us seem to know. The details, according to our reporting, Lloyd Austin underwent an elective procedure in late December, didn't tell his staff they should notify others when he was admitted to Walter Reed Medical Center on New Year's Day after experiencing severe pain. At the same time, his chief of staff was ill with the flu and failed to notify anyone. The person said that we've been speaking to, according to our source, that Austin's military aide quickly put Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks in charge of running the Pentagon, although she wasn't informed of the reason for this decision. And the president, seemingly for days, didn't have a clue 
clue, Isaac, what was going on. What is going on? This is one of the weirder stories you're going to come across in the Biden administration, which by and large has been pretty tame when it comes to these personnel stories, especially compared to the previous four years. But it's deeply unsettling. Right. I, I know that the uh, secretary is a is an incredibly personal, excuse me, uh, incredibly private person. And that this is uh, something that all the staff have highlighted about him. But you don't get to be this private when you're sixth in line in the presidential line of succession. And so, look, this is deeply unsettling, especially given that transparency is one of the pillars of our political system. But ultimately, this too shall pass. And I think it just reminds you of, of some of the, the stories of personnel uh, volatility that we saw during the Trump administration, which is going to be one of the campaign trail considerations as well. You said volatility. Do you expect him to step down? No, look, I think I think that depending on health, of course, that he is going to be fine. I mean, the president has not um, has not made any comment that suggests that the defense secretary will, will leave here. So I think he will stay. I wouldn't be surprised if he's replaced if the President Biden does win re-election, though. I think this is the type of thing that doesn't get you uh, reappointed. Well, this raises a question, though, in general about foreign policy and also the platform for uh, President Biden going forward. There were a list of asks that people are talking about his new platform, all of which are going to get rejected and are dead in the water. Is he going to basically be running on the anti-Trump candidacy once again at a time when Trump is consolidating a lot of popular support? Yeah, look, I mean, there's obviously you, you've heard that line a thousand times that you campaign in poetry, but you govern in prose. I don't think anyone's going to like the poetry we see from the campaign trail this time around. It is truly going to be a fear driven campaign. It is fear of the other side. It is fear of reversal it is fear of retribution. I don't seem to think that we're going to see much hope and excitement coming from the campaign trail over the next few months. Isaac, you know, the polarity of the states with Ohio and Ohio. Wesleyan. I'm absolutely fascinating of the polarity in the Iowa caucuses. What is the distinctive tension as we begin the political season in Iowa? I mean, look, presidential primaries are about uh, retail politics, and they're about um, and they're about personal preference more so than any national poll could ever understand. And then when we think about Iowa, we've got to think about President Trump having a 32-point lead. And we've got to think about also, and I think this is important, Tom, DeSantis went all in on Iowa. This is it for him. And if he comes in second and loses by 30 points, which the polls are suggesting, pretty hard to imagine him uh, being considered a serious contender going to New Hampshire, where he's clearly third and far behind Haley. And so really, this is, to me, Iowa is a litmus test for the DeSantis campaign. If he loses as badly as it looks, I think that his campaign, which has already been floundering, will effectively be over. And it's really a question then of how strongly Nikki Haley can look in New Hampshire a week later. But to that point, Isaac, if he loses and he has to drop out, who does he back? Where do those votes go? Look, I think it will be incredibly difficult for him to uh, back anyone. I think that he will he will remain in the background. My bet, though, is that those bets, those votes actually split somewhat to Haley and the rest stay home for the primary. But my point to clients is Trump is going to be the nominee. That is very clear right now. He is the likely nominee. Those votes, when we're trying to figure out where they're going, they're going to him in the general election. And so that's the important point here. There's still so many clients and so many people in D.C. who don't want it to be Trump v. Biden. And I understand that. But all indications are it's Trump v. Biden. 
And that's what the market and D.C. folks need to start wrapping their heads around when we think about the politics and the policy of it all. I said, thank you, sir. I said, Boltanski there of BRTG. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Barnard Crockett, Senior Research Analyst at Rosenblatt Securities, joins us now for more. Barnard, let's talk about that, the prospect of sales picking up for the iPhone and what's been holding them back over the last year. Well, look, I think that, uh, um, you know, we downgraded Apple in August, early August. Um, We currently have a $189 price target neutral rating. And, uh, you know, our concern at that time is that you had a combination of uh, a muted growth trajectory really across much of the company, including the iPhone, certainly factoring prominently into that, um, and a high valuation. So uh, that combination in our mind was not compelling, not something you needed to be uh, overweight on. I think the uh, um, the issue with the iPhone is the feature set innovation um, and the consumer pocketbook um, and some question about China. And I think all of those things have you know given us data points that are very supportive of the notion that you're in a very muted place right now for iPhone. And I think given that that's something like 50% of sales, very difficult for that stock to have a lot right. of excitement, I think, if there's not a lot of excitement in the iPhone. Uh, Barton, the basic idea here, I guess, for the bulls is they're running it for profit. If you look at the EBITDA margin from COVID 2019, they've moved from 29 cents on the dollar up to 33 cents in the dollar. Even if they get a Barton Crockett sales lassitude, can they maintain margins? Um, you know, the, the company, I think, can maintain margins, um, you know, but I, I don't know that that's type of story. Uh, you know, nickel and diming margins, muted growth um, is something that's going to be really compelling at, uh, at currently about a 28 PE, um, 30 PE when we downgraded. I think the uh, um, certainly it's a great company. It's a good company that you could want to own at the appropriate price. But I think you've got to be price sensitive. I think it's a maturing company um, and you can't buy it at any multiple and you can't uh, sit back and predict blue sky multiple expansion in perpetuity with this type of business um, as we see it right now. I look at the center tendency of a long-term chart. When you say a pullback, how much would that be? If you do get some negative news out of China, et cetera, is this from 180 down to 160, which is the center distribution? Um, you know, certainly we would feel more comfortable with a healthy double-digit return to our price target. Um, you know, I I do have some comfort with our estimates and with the street consensus. I do believe that, you know, people have baked in the idea of a very muted iPhone. Um, you know, this is a company you can own at the right price, but it's a mature company price. Uh, it's not a growth multiple, I think. 
Barton, is this an Apple problem or is this a big tech problem more broadly? You know, I think this is much more Apple. I mean, we look at some other big tech companies in our coverage uh, and we see a, a really great um, confluence of things developing, lower interest rates, certainly supporting uh, multiples expansion, um, certainly favoring scarce growth, which you don't have at Apple, but you do have at things like Amazon. Um, and I think there's been a reset in the internet model. People have understood that you can run these businesses with much better margins, much more efficiently. You know, so while you're nickel and diming some margin improvement at Apple, you're seeing explosive margin improvement at Amazon, at Meta, at Pinterest, at Spotify. You know, those are, I think, are much more interesting opportunities in this environment. Never thought that people would say Pinterest and Spotify would trump uh, Apple when it came to potential opportunities. Is it negative enough, in your view, for them to really drop out of the MAG-7, for this to be defined by a very different narrative that Apple is just not included in, in 2024? Well, you know, I mean, MAG-7, um, certainly that's kind of, uh, uh, you know, a term of art, I guess. The, the, the thing with Apple is I think it's a CPG company. I think that um, you know, it's a company that um, you'll like to own at the right price, um, you know, in a certain macro environment where perhaps uh, it's defensive. If the economy is slowing, maybe it's more interesting. Uh, but you don't need to be overweight Apple in every environment. Um, you should pick and choose your places. I always wonder what the appropriate multiple on that name actually is. You've got the core good, the iPhone going X growth. You've got a multiple that still looks pretty growthy as the revenue mix starts to shift towards services. Now, Barton, I'm wondering from your perspective, what multiple did you put on that business? Well, look, I mean, I think that it's trading at about 1.4 times or so the market multiple. Um, you know, I think a lesser premium is appropriate. Um, you know, you can give it some premium given the, the strength of its franchise, the strength of its brand, the durability. You know, the iPhone's not going away. Um, and they've got good cash flow and good share repurchase. So to think that this could be a, a low to mid-20s multiple um, makes more sense to me than a 30 multiple. Banner, thank you, sir, for your insight, the update to a new year. Banner Crockett there of Rosenblatt Securities. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, Tune in and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.